people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan the Shephan, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan the Shephan eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right side under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Edward had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols, me, Gilgal, and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Edward came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Edward said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Edward reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right side, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Edward went into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened it, and there lay their lord dead on the floor. Edward escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. When the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader, and he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. 
and they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a manscape. So, Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goat, and he also saved Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Jeff. It's lovely to be with you to share God's word with you this morning. Um, I think the last time I did this here would have been back when I was a student minister here in 2012. So it's been a long time. I can start being a bachelor, so I'm going to. seven or eight minutes, and uh, if you go longer than that, then you will run into the light and everyone will hate you. So it's a strong incentive to speak shorter. So hopefully I won't uh, do that or over the So there we go. Well, are you someone who loves superhero stories? I not so much, so um, I'm not very good keeping up with things. But I asked one of my students what they did in holidays, and he said that his highlight was having a friend come over to his house every day, and for a bit over a bit under a week, they sat down and they watched every single Marvel movie that was available on Disney Plus. In his words, it was fantastic. Um, there is just something about superhero stories that people like. Perhaps you have a favorite superhero um, that you like or a superpower that you wish you had. Uh, last um, Friday, I decided to ask one of my year 8 classes uh, if they did have a favorite superhero, if they did have a superpower uh, super that they wish they had. And it was interesting that they didn't say some of the things I expected. Not expecting to say, oh, I'd be cool to fly or be able to be invisible. Have super strength and super speed or something like that. Um, instead, they talked about how it'd be really cool to be able to read people's minds or uh, create a multitude of gadgets that could do different stuff or different things. Um, one girl um, said that her favorite superhero was Spider Man, but only the Tom Holland one because, and I must stress that these were her words, because he's hot. Um, part of the reason, I think, why I find the whole favorite superhero, favorite superhero, part of the reason I think I find that really interesting um, is because I think it says something about us. Um, obviously, thinking that Tom Holland is somewhat attractive um, is a fairly superficial thing. Um, but thinking that a certain superhero um, is the best one, or thinking that a certain superpower is the best one to have. Um, it tells us something of what we think is useful. Uh, it tells us what, the, what we think are the kinds of qualities or um, characteristics or abilities that might help us to overcome our problems and our limitations, um, to fix the things that are wrong with our world or meet the kind of challenges that we think might come up. So, to you, if you can choose a power, any superpower, 
of my family. Would you choose? Would you want to be able to fly? Would you want to become invisible? Or would you want to be super strong or super fast? So what we would pick tells us something about what we value, something about what we want to improve in what we wish we had. Or if you could choose to have a super uh, a fictional superhero uh, present in our world, Well, last week, um, Sam took us through the cycle, the pattern of the book of Judges, uh, and Judges chapter 2, and we saw these different kind of steps in the cycle uh, that happened each time. Um, and over and over again, we see the people who are doing the same things. So people reject God, and they follow the ways of the nations around them. They follow the nations that they were told to have nothing to do with. And they follow their gods. Then, God punishes his people by handing them over to some of these nations to be oppressed. Then the people call out and God hears their cries. And they're not necessarily calling out to God to express repentance or trust. Uh, but more, they're just crying out in anguish because the situation is just so bad. And yet, God hears their cries. He has pity on them. He makes his promises to them. He raises up a judge to save them, to lead them and rescue them from their oppressors. And then the land has peace and rest for as long as the judge is alive. But then, once the judge dies, the people go back to rejecting God and following the gods in the nation of the and the whole cycle starts again. So each of the judges that we'll see uh, that come up in the book, they're rescuers, they're messiahs, and chosen, raised up by God to save his people. They're like ancient superheroes, each with their own abilities and each with their own flaws. And so as we look at their stories, we find out things about what God is like and what we're like. And so in the Old Testament, we're shown about those three judges. Othniel, Edward, and Shamgar. Uh, we're not told much about Shankar, so we'll focus on Othniel and Edward. Uh, and you see, so first, let's look at the story. Well, the first thing to note is just how clearly this fits the cycle that we were just showing in chapter two. Go through each of the steps. So in verse seven of chapter three, we're told that the people of Israel they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And what they do is they forget. They forget the Lord their God, what is the life that he's done, and instead he served the Baals and the Asterisk. There's other gods of the nations. And so in verse 8, the anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel, and he raised up an oppressor, Hushan Rithatayim of Mesopotamia. So Mesopotamia is essentially Iraq. So this is a nation from outside the land who have come in and have taken over and oppressed the people of Israel. And the second part of his name, his king's name, the Rishabayan name part of his name, means double wickedness. 
And so, in the same way that we have people in history, like you know, Ivan the Terrible, or William the Conqueror, or Alexander the Great, or Fabian Taylor, here we have Christian the Double Victim. So, people reject God, God brings in this bad guy, Christian the Double Victim, to oppress Israel. And then the next victim cycle, just one, the people cry out, and God raises up a deliverer. This guy, Othniel. God's Spirit is on him, and he judges that he believes and rescues Israel. He goes out, and he defeats Hushan, the Babylonian. And then, verse 11, the land has rest and peace until Hushan comes. Now, this is a very short account. It illustrates for us this cycle. And we want to look at Othniel to see what it tells us about ourselves and what it tells us about God. But the thing is, we actually don't hear much about Othniel. Not told all that many things. And I want to suggest that this is actually a good thing. At least it is for Othniel. Um, as we see as we go through the book of Judges, often we'll hear lots and lots of things about the Judges, about their backstory and the kind of decisions they make and what they're like. But most of the time, what we hear about is their flaws. We hear about their deficiencies in character. And we don't see any of that in Othniel. In fact, we're not told anything bad. We're not told any negative things about Othniel. All we're told is that he's Caleb's nephew, the son of Caleb's younger brother, and that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. We aren't even told in detail about the goodies that he rescued Israel, other than that he believed in his country war. Uh, in your brochures, or perhaps uh, as we were doing the Bible reading, if you're perceptive, you may have realized that we've actually seen Othniel earlier in this book. Uh, so come with me back to Judges chapter 1. And in Judges chapter 1, um, we'll show that the book is set up for us. And we see that the people. They're told or they're about to start working through the towns that are taking over the promised land. And at first, we follow the tribe of Judah. And the tribe of Judah makes this deal with the tribe of Simeon. You, or so you, help us take the land and take our bit of the land. And then we will help you take your bit of the land. Right? And it's a good deal. The deal seems to work quite well. And then in verse 11, there's this story of taking this one place to be. Curious and Caleb, who must be super old by this time, he is still keen to take the land and he sets up a challenge. Whoever captures the city will be given his daughter, Aksa, in marriage. And in verse 13, in chapter 1, we see it's our man, Othniel, Caleb's younger brother's son, his nephew, who does it. And so this sets us up to expect Othniel as to be this good, this really decent leader. He is the expected hero of Samuel. He has an outstanding pedigree. He's from the line of Caleb. He's his nephew. This Caleb guy who is a leader within the people of Judah. He's a hero of faith and a model of goodness. And so he has his lineage. But he also seems to be a bit of a go-getter, who has considerable fighting skills. So 
and in verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And the Lord gave Kushan Rishapayim into his hand. And the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Othniel might be a great guy. He might do all the right things. But ultimately, this is all about the Lord. He is the one that they rejected. He is the one who has raised up an oppressive discipline. And he is the one who gave grace up Othniel to save from this world. It's all about So that's optimal. Let's move on to Edward. Well, again, we see the cycle. After Optimal dies, verse 12, the people of Israel did again what was evil. God raised up another person. This time it's the Moabites in the land of Israel. Verse 15, the people pull out to God, and again, God raised up a deliverer, Edward. There's a story of how he kills Eglon, but essentially it's Edward who leads him to victory. The Moabites are subdued, and the oppressors become the oppressed, and their peace is rest. And notice how generous God is. So in verse 14, we're told that they're oppressed for 18 years, and verse 30, we see that they're oppressed for 80 years. And in the optimal story, they're oppressed for 8 years, and they enjoy rest for 40 years. And God blesses them with so much more. But here in Edward's story, there's a much more detailed account of what Edward does. And this is true for lots of the judges in the rest of the book. And part of it is just because they're really great stories. Now, when I talk scripture, uh, both in upper primary and as a young high school students, uh, I sometimes go to this story just because it's kind of gross and kind of interesting. Um, the two kind of go together for yeah, boys of that age, gross and interesting, they're really the same thing. Um, but they're also stories that tell us about God and what he's like. Uh, in my growth group, so this week, someone asked why this story is here in the Bible. Why include all this stuff about him being, yeah, you know, being really fat and about the dung coming out? To which I thought, of course you'd include this. That's what makes this story fantastic. So you can imagine back in the Days, like two and a half thousand years ago, there would be Jewish Uncle Matalani there with a group of kids around him, telling them the story of how there's this really fat guy called Eglon, and how that God raised up this left-handed guy who stabs him in the guts. And it's a great story. So let's quickly through this story. So Israel sinned again. God raised up Eglon the Moabite to oppress Israel. And we're told in verse 17 that Eglon is a very fat man. His name, Eglon, it even sounds fat. Um, by the way, it also sounds fat in Hebrew. It sounds similar to the word for fat in cars. And when Israel cry out to God in their distress, God raised up Eglon. Now, if Othniel was an expected hero, like pedigrees and able and gifted and good and all those things, um, Edward is not an expected hero. He doesn't seem to be any of these things. He doesn't have much of a pedigree. He's from Benjamin, the part of Benjamin, which is a bit of a nothing tribe. Um, it's the smallest tribe in Israel, 
is the one that ends up going so far off the rails by the end of the book of Judges that they almost get wiped out entirely. very, very close. And physically, he isn't an obvious candidate either. We're told that he's left handed. Now, I also am left handed. And so, uh, when I read, um, when I read uh, this part of Judges, I think, great, I feel solidarity with Edward. Uh, all the smudging of my writing, the years of being forced unsuccessfully to switch these switching hands, the, the, uh, all the structures and all the things of the rest of society, all the judgment for when I sit next to people or bump out of them or when I eat next to them or whatever it has to be. Edward is my kind of guy. Solidarity. He represents me. He is my kind of hero. See, the phrase left handed. It might have meant that he was actually left handed, that he preferred his left hand rather than his right hand. But that would have been really rare back then. Or, it could be a way of saying that he had a form right hand. See, at best, it could have been left handed. At worst, Anyway, Edward sent to bring the tribute, the gift to Eglon, this gift of riches they're forced to bring because they're being oppressed. And Edward, he makes a double edged sword. We're told it's about a cubit long, and his footnote will hopefully convert that to about 45 centimeters or 18 inches. He has this strapped, and you would hope, sheath um, to his right thigh. Now, this is pretty big if you think about it 45 centimeters or 18 inches. So either Edward's really, really tall, or Edward's kind of walking funny. Now, if Edward's someone who already has a performed hand, no one's going to ask any questions. And no one's going to touch him to check it out. This is his arm is here, but this is where it's going to be. Anyway, Edward says to Eglon, I have a secret message for you. Actually, in the Hebrew, there isn't the word message, it's more like thing. So, it's more like I have a secret thing for you. The thing is, we know what the thing is, it's a sword. But Eglon doesn't. And maybe he's expecting some kind of present on top of his tribute. Special thing. The kids have their own guests, but maybe it's like there's some kind of extra food that the cream is eating. It's a scary bird. We know what the thing is, but everyone doesn't. And so it's meant to be a secret, so he sends away his attendants. And on the face of it, this seems like an extremely dumb thing to do, extremely risky thing to do. And we know that based on because of the outcome. And in this story, everyone's being shown not just as very fast, but possibly even a bit dumb. But in his defense, again, if Edward is someone who's a deformed hand, maybe Edward's thinking, what is my Edward? What's the worst that can happen? There's not much of a threat. And so, Edward says he has this message or this thing from God for Edward, for Edward. So he takes the sword with his left hand, 
black dog, and he stabs it into Eglon's fat belly. And Eglon is so fat, so fat, that the blade covers over, it's covered over. And because he's been stabbed in the belly, we're told that the dung or the excrement came out. His bowels are a little And Edward runs away and locks the door in his back. And Eglon's attendants, the ones who have been shooed out, they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And they wonder what's happened to the king. He's been a while. They come to the locked doors and they think, gee, maybe he's on the toilet. After all, it does smell. And again, we know what's happened. We know he's been stabbed in the guts and food himself. But they don't. And so they keep waiting, and so Edward has enough time to get away, and he gets a fighting force together, and they defeat the Moabites. It's interesting that in verse 29, the Moabites, the three the Moabites, were described as now, like Othniel, we're told that God is the one who raised up the dead. But we're told more about Edward and what he's like. He's an unexpected hero. Either because he's left-handed, he's strange, or he's a person with a disability. He would consider him outcast and somewhat expendable. Again, perhaps this is why he's selected as a person who's going to take the tribute to Edward. In any case, Edward's a very strange choice for God to choose as the leader of the best world of his people. But he is resourceful and skillful. He makes the sword himself. He works out a way to carry it and use it. He creates an opportunity. And he takes that opportunity and makes the most of it. It's a comprehensive victory. It's a funny, somewhat disgusting victory. It's an unexpected victory. Now, of course, we should expect God to do this. We should expect God to be faithful to his promises and to his people and to his people. Of course, he's going to rescue them. But this is not how we would expect God to do this. We would expect more like us here. He was the obvious person, he's a proven fighter, he's got a famous and respected family. Well, pedigree, he leads Israel to battle and they win. That's what we expect. But Edward, Edward is from a nobody sort of tribe. He's physically different. He does this roundabout thing where he doesn't lead Israel directly in the battle, but instead he does this slightly sneaky thing to kill the king and then lead the people into battle once everything is destroyed the victory. Well, let's bring all this together to think about who it is that transcends. Now, at the start, we thought that our superheroes are something about ourselves. What are these two judges, these two rescuers and heroes? What do they tell us about God who sent them? Well, in the cycle, we see God's faithfulness, God's kindness. We see the seriousness of sin, the reality of its consequences. We see the heart of God moved by the suffering of his people. We see his kindness in sending the rescuer, even when they don't deserve it. We see the power of God in being able to defeat the oppressor. And we see the generosity of God in lavishly blessing them with peace and mercy. 
not just in the judges, we see them in the Lord Jesus. That's the mysterious, the consequences. God's heart is moved by our situation, not just how lost we are in this life, but the seriousness of eternity without him in judgment. And so God is truly kind in sending Jesus to rescue us, even when we don't deserve it. And God is truly generous in giving us the life we have now with him, and life will return to you. We see this repeated, this cycle repeated time after time in Jesus. And this will become more and more stark as we see the descent into Israel as it gets worse and worse and worse. Um, but Othniel and Ethel, they point us to other things we see in Jesus. So like Othniel, in Jesus we have a rescuer of impeccable lineage and Jesus was born in the tribe of Judah, in the line of King David. But more importantly, Jesus was God's very own son. And in Jesus, we have a rescuer, a hero who is righteous, who does nothing wrong. There's no compromise on sin, he doesn't give in to temptation. And Jesus is ambitious and courageous in holding on to him and fulfilling God's promises. And like Edward, we have someone who is unexpected. In Isaiah 53, we're told the Savior will be a suffering servant. Now, verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah 53 say this He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and was then forgotten. In some children's Bibles and things, you see Jesus looks noticeably different. To the people around him, more impressive, shinier, usually whiter than the people around him. But the Bible shows us this just wasn't the case. Jesus wasn't physically And even though he was in the line of David, he wasn't rich, he wasn't of noble birth, he was a carpenter's son, born in Bethlehem, but raised in the country town of Nazareth, far, far away from the capital of Jerusalem. To God rescue us. Not just from the king and other wickedness, but from wickedness itself. And even though he's done it exactly the way he promised, it's still not exactly how we might have expected him to. Uh, in our New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians 1, we said Jesus is God's wisdom, God's wonderful, and God's wise plan to save us. But from the outside, it might seem like a foolish and unimpressive way of doing it. See, God is truly powerful. There's not human power that saves us from sin. God is truly wise. There's not God, there's not human wisdom that saves us from sin. God saves us from sin through Christ crucified. Jesus is the unexpected, expected hero. He is the one who rescues us. But there's more. You see, you and I, we can be heroes. We're not Jesus, but we're God's means for building his kingdom, God's means for making a difference in this world. And like Othniel, it's important that we don't compromise on sin or give in to temptation. Like Othniel, we can be ambitious, we can be courageous in living out the promises of God. In Ethel, 
we see that God can use all sorts of people to make a difference. He can use our skills, even our limitations. And like Bethany, we could be resourceful. We should try to make opportunities. We should try and take those opportunities and make the most of them. So we don't need superpowers to be useful. We don't need to be able to spy or be invisible. As we are, you and I can be heroes who build God's kingdom and make a difference in our world. Now, today is Reformation Sunday. It's Reformation Sunday. And in the Reformation, we see all sorts of people that God uses. There's the official religious leaders like Luther, like Cranmer. There's the political leaders and social influencers like Lady Jane Grey. But we also see there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ordinary people, farmers, tradespeople, children, so that over and over again, we can make lots of lives and make a real difference. So you and I can be heroes as we tell people about the ultimate hero of Jesus, as we point to God's wisdom and God's power as we serve each other. So we can use our natural gifts, we can use our circumstances, sometimes even our limitations, and we can be bold in doing things for God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you rescued us through our Lord Jesus, who served us by living and dying for us. And thank you for, for people who have served us and made a difference in our lives by being bold and courageous in telling us about Jesus and using the gifts and circumstances to serve us. Father, help us to be like this for you and for us.